Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing. Nicola Mendelssohn is Facebook's Vice President for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, and as such one of the most influential executives at one of the world's biggest brands and most significant marketing channels. Since joining in 2013, the company has grown exponentially, as well as being the subject of intense scrutiny and criticism. Starting her career in advertising at BBH in 1992, she rose to business development director before leaving to join Grey London as its deputy chairman in 2004. In 2008, she left to join independent agency Karmarama as partner and executive chairman, a position she held for five years before joining Facebook. She was also awarded a royal seal of approval in 2015 after being handed a CBE for services to the creative industries. All achievements and challenges that were perhaps put into perspective last year when she announced first that she was receiving treatment for cancer and then that the treatment was showing signs of being successful. Nicola, welcome. It's great to uh, talk to you. How are you feeling? I'm actually really well. I got probably the best end of year present I could have got, which is I was told that after six months of chemotherapy and immunotherapy that I was in remission. So I'm actually feeling really good and really strong. I can't imagine for a second what it must feel like to be given that kind of news. What kind of coping mechanisms did you perhaps retrospectively adopt? I think the word cancer is probably the scariest word that exists in, in the dictionary. And being told it when you don't feel ill was without question one of the hardest things that I've ever experienced and one of the darkest periods for me in my life and what I realized very quickly was that wasn't going to help me and and so I did what I have always done in every part of my life which is to research it know what's know what it means know what I can do that was in my control or not and you know I'm lucky that I was able to work with the very best doctors London has amazing doctors and to be able to start to adjust to the fact that I do have an incurable cancer. But luckily, the, one of the doctors gave me some really good advice to say, see this one more like a chronic disease, more like a diabetes, where it will come and it will flare up and you can bash it away and then hopefully put it away for a long time. So I'm hoping I've put it away for a long time to come. Does receiving news like that make you sort of reevaluate your priorities, see things like work in a different way? I think it, I definitely think it is something that can do that for a lot of people. I've always tried to make sure that in my life, I have always practiced doing the things that matter to me, prioritizing my family, prioritizing my friends, doing a job that I love. And so actually from a, a work and a, I guess a life perspective, it wasn't something for me that made me do massive changes because I was very grateful for the life that I had anyway. The biggest changes actually were, were physical changes that I made, which were much more around the fact that I had the most insatiable sweet tooth. So I gave up uh, my love of penny sweets and I had a virtual allergy to exercise. And after many, 40 something years of not doing any exercise, I now am regularly exercising. So they were probably the biggest changes that I actually made. 
well, I'm not going to ask you about your exercise <laughs> regime. So moving on and asking you to think back when you were either, I don't know, you were a schoolgirl in Manchester, I think it was, I was. You grew up, and perhaps when you were at Leeds University. I read that you were thinking about going to drama school at once, which seems a long way from your first steps into advertising. So why advertising? Why, why not drama and why did you move into advertising? Um, I love drama. I love the theatre. And I was very fortunate I did have a place at drama school, which I never took up. But I, I came to realise and understand that so much of being successful in the theatre was actually a lot of luck and less about talent. Uh, not that I had any great talent, but the people I saw around me that I thought were excellent were really struggling. And at about a similar time, a friend of mine who was a year older had a place in London working at JWT in the media department. And I had never heard of a career in advertising. And I just thought it was incredible that this was something that, you know, you could make a living out of. And it was a similar time to the incredible, iconic Levi's advertising. It's one of my favorite ads remains that, that iconic Nick Kamen going into the laundrette. 33 years ago. Oh my goodness, you're making me feel very old. And me. <laughs> but what, what that did was to tell a story that you could tell a story in 60 seconds and really change consumer habits was something that really appealed to me. So that's what got me started on a, a career in advertising. If you think back to your first jobs in advertising, was there a piece of advice that you were offered that proved influential? And I was very lucky that there were many moments because I grew up in advertising in, I guess, the heyday in BBH and literally being around John Bartle, Nigel Bogle, John Hegarty. I, I sat outside John Bartle and Nigel Bogle's office for my entire time actually at being BBH. So I would be picking up brilliant insights and ideas all the time. I mean, BBH had on its walls etched in stone its principles around how you made great creative work. And I think the, the belief that good ideas could come from anywhere, great creativity could come from anywhere, was something that I always held first and foremost. But also that John Hegarty also used to speak about that the tighter the brief, the more opportunities to liberate creativity. So I've always liked hard problems and challenges because I've always thought you could find the most interesting solutions to them. Creativity is often said to have somehow been lost or it's been lost because the means of delivering different media, digital media perhaps, has sort of taken away the broad palette and the big sort of, the big idea. I mean, would you would you say that creativity is, is not what it used to be? I adore the creative industry and the wider creative industry. And I think we're actually living probably in the most exciting period for, in terms of what can be done from a creative perspective, especially when it comes to advertising, you know, it used to be that you could tell a story in 30 or 60 seconds. You can tell stories in one and three seconds now. You can change consumer behaviours and habits. You can create memes and get things out there viral that can touch everybody in the world. Like, that was never possible before. Thinking back on John Hegarty, he, he used to say that the only real invention in an advertising perspective over the last 50 years before the internet was the birth of the 30-second TV ad. We are seeing so many new formats and things that are being created to tell stories from an advertising perspective now that I think there's never been a more creative time to tell a story. There's lots of discussion in marketing about the need for agencies to change, that the way that they did things for clients isn't fit for purpose in a modern world. You've obviously worked agency side and you're very much part of the modern world at Facebook. Would you accept that agencies need to do things differently 
What I love about the question is it's implicit that agencies have never changed. And yet, when I think back to when I started, when I started in advertising, creative and media were still together. And then whilst I was in advertising, creative and media separated. And then we've seen different ways that they've sort of coming back for some agencies and not for others. So actually, my own experience of agencies is that they've constantly changed. If you were to take a roll call today of the jobs in advertising and media agencies today... They're probably pretty different to even the jobs that existed five years ago because there's so many new things like data scientists, data analytics, the social media editors. All these jobs didn't even exist just a handful of years ago. So I see the agencies are changing. I see new agencies that are forming. And I think that's pretty reflective of the nature of the industry, which is it's always been a dynamic industry. It's always reflected what the different media of the day are and therefore it's had to adjust accordingly. What do you make of some of the newer entrants, the Accentures, the IBMs, who are said to be disrupting the model? Is that healthy for all concerned, particularly clients, would you say? I think what we're seeing is that with what's going on with with digital and with the, the internet, there is no industry that is not being disrupted in some way. And I think that is the same is true uh, of the Marcoms industry as well. So I think we are seeing new entrants from the likes of the consultants, but we're also seeing new smaller businesses that are being created as well. Plus, we're seeing that the existing industry is also adapting and changing. So I think we're seeing a huge period of change at the moment. And I think that's exciting. I think that's exciting because there are new platforms, there are new ways to tell stories. But I think it means that people have to keep up to speed as to what's new in order that you can reach the customers that the brands want to reach in the right ways possible. You've been described by the Daily Telegraph as the most powerful woman in British tech. As a prominent female leader in an industry that is often quite male-dominated, do you see yourself as a role model? I am one of the leaders in the tech space. And it is true that there are not enough senior women in the tech industry. I I think we're making some progress, but I think there's still a way to go. You know, when I look at the tech industry, there's still definitely not enough women across the board. I do see progress and I do see change. When I look at the UK wider media industry, you know, the fact that we have Alex Mahan, Carolyn McCall, Karen Blackett, you know, when I started in the industry and I looked up, they w- those sorts of women would not have been there running the big media industries, running the big holding companies. So that fills me with hope. But I also think that there is still so much more that we need to be doing. And I think what's pretty clear is that women alone can't do this. We need men to be the allies. And again, I'm encouraged that, you know, there's more programs being created. There was a recent one unveiled at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where the male champions of change, a number of CEOs, including a number from British companies, signed up to say they want to do more to ensure gender representation and gender equality, which is fantastic to see. But actually, there's still not enough that's happening. And one of the things that particularly worries me is an unintended consequence of the Me Too movement, which was in some recent research that was done by Lean In and also SurveyMonkey. What we're actually seeing is that more Male CEOs, male managers are actually more nervous about spending time with female colleagues. They don't want to mentor them anymore. You know, they're nervous of having one-to-one meetings with them alone. And that's actually been a doubling in a year. So that's something that we need to call out. It's something we need to be aware of. And I think it's something that needs to be acted upon. If I could ask you to think back when you took a call or however the contact was made to join Facebook, you were obviously in a 
fantastic position at a fantastic agency at Kamarama. What was it that inspired you, motivated you even to join Facebook? I think it probably starts with curiosity. I've always been a very curious person. I've always been a person that likes the new. And at the time, I was, the, I was also the head of the IPA. I was the IPA president. And my whole mantra had been about making the UK the, the best place in the planet to do digital advertising, digital communication. So I, my curiosity was really wedded. I was really excited about the changes that I saw and could see that were coming along the line. And so when Facebook called and kind of offered me a ringside view of being able to see being right at the heart, it was just too good an opportunity to say no to. You've seen, I'm sure you would agree, quite a lot of change in the time that you've been at Facebook. If you were to identify one or two things that you would say are the biggest changes since joining, what would those be? I almost don't know where to start because there have been so many. You know, when I think back almost six years ago, in London, we were less than 200 people. We were just Facebook and just had acquired Instagram at that time. You know, WhatsApp wasn't on the horizon, Messenger wasn't. And so, you know, the shift to mobile was just happening. So there were so many things that were changing. And plus, of course, the size of Facebook and I guess the sense of responsibility that we have, those are all things that have changed quite a huge amount in, in the time that I've been there. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. I think, I'm sure you would agree, it's fair to say that Facebook has had quite a torrid time. It's been accused of a lot of things in the last, well, couple of years, I think. You know, people have talked about it being a facilitator for abuse or a place where nefarious content can be hosted, that it's too dominant, uh, that it's damaging to democracy. I mean, I'm sure you've read and seen all of those different headlines. Would you, knowing all of that, knowing what has happened in the last couple of years, if you were to get a call today, would you still come and work for Facebook? Absolutely, yes. For exactly the same reason, because I think where we are at the moment, we're in a period where we're at the beginning of new technologies. And I think it's right that we're having the conversations as to not, not just about Facebook, but about it's almost what sort of internet do we, do we want? What, how do we want these forces to, to be worked with? Who, who should be the people that get to decide? And so from an intellectual perspective, and the fact that the mission remains the same, to be able to connect people and to see the good that is done as a result of the platforms is truly extraordinary. And I sometimes think that perhaps not all of the good uh, gets its way to the surface in the, in the same way that sometimes some of the bad. And if you think about it today, we have over 2.7 billion people that are using our platforms. And so what we represent with that many people is the very best of people, but sometimes also the worst of people as well. And I think as a company, we were very focused on the good. And I don't think that we, we spent enough time thinking about the downsides and the bad. And I think over the last 18 months in particular, I think you've seen that we have made a lot of changes. I certainly feel it's been the biggest cultural shift in terms of how the company's felt in the time that I've been at the company and the changes that we've made. And so it really does feel that we're a very different company than we were even a year ago. 
Just focusing on a few of those challenging things that you've received scrutiny for. Uh, when it comes to content, uh, you've faced a lot of criticism from many advertisers and bodies such as Isbar that it's not enough for you to mark your own homework. I'm quoting Isbar, I think it was, and police that content that yourself, entirely yourself, that you should be subject to independent verification. I've seen lots of different solutions offered uh, to do that and to make sure that advertisers know that they are advertising in a safe place. And what would you say to those people who are calling for that independent verification and that independent audit? So I think there's several parts to your question, so I want to take each one of those um, in turn. First off, on the question of marking our own homework um, when it comes to advertisers, we don't do that. There are over now 40 measurement partners that we have, third-party verification, that actually look at and evaluate the work that we do when we're working with advertisers. So that's something that I'm really pleased about, that we've increased that number. And we're working with the MRC in America as well to go through the different accreditation processes there. So that's on that one. On the issue of brand safety, I think this is one of the areas that you've probably seen some some of the biggest changes. And if you want to really understand what a company values, look at where they're investing. And so we have invested significantly in this area, especially over the last 18 months. So we've gone from having 10,000 people that were looking at brand safety to over 30,000 people that are looking after brand safety on our platform. What that means is that they that, that's real people that are working also with artificial intelligence, deep machine learning, to be able to take away things from the platform often before they even get up there. A good example of that would be the work uh, that we've done around um, terrorism. So now on our platform, on Facebook, 99% of any terrorist material is taken down before anyone sees it. Now, I'm really proud of that figure. I think that's really good and strong. Still not where we want it to be. There's still more that we can be doing. When it comes to, to hate speech, we've doubled the amount that we're taking down. And this is millions and millions of posts that we're taking down every week, every day, every month of the year. And so you'll continue to see us working with independent experts, working with NGOs, working with governments around the world to be able to ensure that the policies that we have in place and the manner in which we take it down are in adherence to those codes and policies that exist. And we publish all of this now. This is all out there. Our policies are out there that people can review. And so are the takedown reports that we also share. And would you be confident in looking any major advertiser or indeed any advertiser in the eye, large or small, and say, we are doing absolutely everything that we possibly can? Yeah, I absolutely would. I, what I would say is that we cannot always guarantee that will be zero occurrence, but we can absolutely guarantee zero tolerance. We will not have things on our platform that do not abide with our policies and, our, and the rules that are set out to govern the content that is on our platform. Some, and people still say it, would suggest that the best way for you to ensure total brand safety would be to accept that you are a publisher as opposed to a technology company. What would you say to those people? I would say that that's not true because we don't actually create our own content. Other people create the content that is then put out onto our platforms and then we have the policies that we have in place to enforce what, what stays up and what doesn't stay up. But I think what we are is a new kind of platform 
And the question really that's behind this question, I think, when you really drill down into it, is one around regulation. Because I think that that's really what is meant, because it's very clear that the, the publishers of, if you like, old media, it's very clear what the rules and the regulations are around that. And the question is therefore around what are the rules and regulations around platforms. There is already a lot out there. And we welcome working with governments, as is in the case that we're doing at the moment with the French government, where we're particularly working together, both sides, are on the area of hate speech. So we think that's a good way to evolve policies going forward together. Talking about old media, traditional media, they would say that it's not a level playing field for loads of reasons, but in particular because they are subject to statutory standards and regulation in a way that you're not, though. Would you, as you say, welcome regulation? Would you embrace it or more of it, therefore? Well, we already have, as I say, a lot of regulation that does exist. I think a good example of that was the work around GDPR that was brought in by Europe, which, you know, for us, in terms of how we prepared for that, was one of the biggest pieces of work that we've done as a company in terms of bringing different experts together so that we were ready when it came in May. But actually, what we found through that was that it was a very useful way of having a line to understand where where things should be. And so we actually rolled that policy for us into more countries around the world. So we rolled out the things that we put in place for Europe globally because we thought it was good that people could really understand what information was being held, it was held about them about Facebook, what they were sharing, how. And so we encouraged everybody to go through the different privacy checkups that we had put in place as a result of GDPR. So I actually think that's a good example of where regulation can work well. If you take last year, as many people, including myself, have said, as a, as a watershed with GDPR, which is a re-evaluation perhaps of the way people capture and process data. Aligned with some of the questions around Cambridge Analytica, do you think the model of using data to sell advertising in the way that it has been is inherently tainted now? Do you think the publicity around GDPR and Cambridge Analytica makes people so aware of the way that data is captured and processed that it's going to change the game, for Facebook in particular? So I I don't think we've done a very good job in the past of explaining our business model. And I do think that there is some misunderstanding or even a belief that advertising is not a good thing. Actually, I think advertising is a great thing. I always have for the reasons that I've, you know, I've enjoyed working in the industry for my whole career. But I think that there's also belief that perhaps, again, that I would disagree with, that you cannot have targeted advertising in a way that's privacy safe? And the answer is, of course, you can. But what I want to be really clear about is that there is a meme out there that we sell people's data, and we absolutely do not do that. What we do do is to take the things that people share with us, which is up to them, and we use that to give them the advertising that is most relevant, most useful for them. And guess what? People enjoy advertising when it's relevant and it is targeted to them. So I believe that this is the right model. Now, we could have gone created other business model ideas as to how we could do this. But let's not forget that the people that are coming on Facebook, or 2.3 billion of them, they're coming on for free. And as are the small businesses that are coming on, the 90 million small businesses that are on our page, they, they have that facility for free. And so they're able to talk to their customers, they're able to talk to their family and friends all around the world for free. And that is because the business choice that we took was to be able to give people advertising. 
picking up on what you were saying, I mean, it is a question of perception and reality. Whatever the rea- reality is, people's per- perception perhaps is is different. So what particular challenge have you identified that you face in reassuring people that their data isn't going to be you know, sold and used in a way that they didn't appreciate it? I think it starts with telling telling our story better. I think actually being out there and being able to have conversations like this, whereby we can actually address the, the conversation or the question head on to be able to be clear about what we do and why we do it. I think that matters. I think that's important. Do you think you could be better at actually marketing Facebook? I think it's probably implicit in your question that we probably could have done a better job of telling our story and our stories in different ways. So I think, yeah, I think that one is room for improvement. From a business perspective, you're doing very well. But then I see lots of research around there that there are concerns around, particularly around data. Is that a sustainable marketing and brand job, you know, to to be successful, but perhaps not to be loved and engaged with and appreciated? Do you think there is an issue there? And, And if so, what do you need to do about it? I think we definitely have been damaged as a brand in the last... 18 months, I think there has been trust that has been lost. And I think the onus is on us to do something about that. But I don't think it's something that you can market your way out of. I think it's something that you need to prove through the actions that you take and the investments that you make. And hopefully through the work that we've done when it comes to brand safety or the protection around election integrity, those sorts of things are a demonstration of the understanding that we have and the responsibility that we have to hopefully build back the trust that, that has been lost. You were very much at the eye of the storm around some of the use of Facebook for Brexit and the US elections. I know you recently made a change requiring political parties to register as advertisers on the platform, but wouldn't it be just easier for Facebook just to say and not not allow political advertising of any kind? Um, look, I'm really proud of the work that we've done in setting out what, what I think is actually industry leading when it comes to political advertising, which is to, A, as you say, make sure that um, political parties are verified before they, they can place advertising, and then to make sure that the anybody can go on to one of those ads, click on, go to a page and see all the different advertising that the political party is actually putting out there and the different messages We've got a commitment to keep an archive of all that work for seven years. And plus, we will create a weekly report in countries to to actually show who's advertising at what time and when. And so this is something that we are rolling out. And it's something with the European elections coming up, we're committed to doing uh, across Europe as well in this period that we're in now. Given the stories that have circulated around Facebook in the last 18 months. You as a very senior leader in the business, I mean, how do you manage the morale of of staff, whether or not it be here in London or any of the territories that you're responsible for? Yeah, I think that's probably some of the most challenging things that you can have because people came here and joined for the mission and to see people telling stories about the things that we've done, some, some right and some not right, about our responsibilities and what we have to do, that's been hard. I think it goes with any leader, any organisation, that you need to tell people what's going on. You keep them informed, you keep them up to date, keep them advised of, of, of what the situation is. But then you also do the things that you need to do, you know, make the changes that are needed. If you were to highlight one so far, what would be your career highlight to date? Well, I'm going to duck that because it's not how I see the world. Um, and the way that I see the world is it's, it's always going to be the, the next thing. 
And I think not looking back and always pushing forward, I think, is the thing that kind of spurs me on to keep doing new and interesting things. Perhaps setting myself up for not the same answer, but a similar, <laughs> a similar one. I mean, what would you, I mean, if you if you're not reflected perhaps on your career, my question was going to be, what advice would you give to your younger self? Okay, so that one's easier then. Um, <laughs> that one would probably be, and especially for my younger self, would be, you know, to use your voice, to speak up more. I can still remember sitting in meetings, largely in rooms of men, where I would have an idea in my head and I lack the courage to tell the story. And yet somebody would then say an idea that was pretty similar. And so that's quite annoying. So I would go back and not do that because I think of all those great ideas that may have been lost or the other people that maybe have that when they're sitting in. And so I always make sure that I try and encourage the voices to come from anywhere. Back to that old BBH thing, the good idea can come from anywhere. Really making sure that I live live by that. And also do scary things. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt that said, do the things you think you cannot do. When you do that, then the most interesting things always happen. I mean, I hear people say that quite a lot and I try to remind myself of such advice when I'm feeling like I'm stepping outside my comfort zone. But it's one of those things that's very easily said and very easily said and thought of as being a wonderful piece of advice. But like, it's a lot harder to do if you are early in your career and you are looking at making sure that you are progressing and that you're not upsetting people. So, I mean, how do you do it? When I look at the younger people coming into the workplace, I actually think they really do embrace this. I came in and sort of my parents had maybe one or two jobs and I'm going to have now had four or five jobs in my whole career. My kids are probably going to have 20 jobs. So I think there's an inherent kind of tendency now that people are just going to try stuff and see how it goes and if it doesn't work. And so inherent in that, I think, will be more risk-taking. And therefore, I think you'll get more interesting things. And you always just have to say, what's, what is the really the very worst thing that could happen? And when you think of it like that, it's not usually that bad. Again, I'm going to ask you to reflect, but fast forward. If you were to leave a legacy, what could that be? I think, I think that would probably have to do with health. And so I would love to be seen as being part of the team that were responsible for finding a cure for follicular lymphoma. I can't think of anything that would be any greater achievement. Nicola Mendelssohn, I wish you continued recovery and good health and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. You've been listening to Marketing Week Meets with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Laura Hyde, sponsored by Salesforce. You can subscribe to Marketing Week Meets via marketingweek.com and iTunes and SoundCloud, where you will find previous episodes with the likes of Byron Sharp, Mark Ritson, Sil Saller, and plenty of others. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.